Welcome back to the Leadership Domain, where we believe that who is greater than why. I'm your host, John Roan, and we're here to share stories told by leaders themselves. Each episode is a glimpse into their who and serves to connect them with you, our listeners. We hope that their lessons, thoughts, and vulnerabilities also serve to unlock your full leadership potential. We're glad you're here with us. Lead them well. General C.Q. Brown is the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. Our conversation today includes candid discussion on how to begin to fix the race and likely gender discrepancies in the Air Force. The Chief also shares his thoughts on risk-averse leaders, the necessity for transparency when developing trust, and how being selfish may be a good thing. It's an honor to be able to spend an hour with a man I consider a mentor and someone I hope to make proud. Thank you for the time. I hope you enjoy it. Lead them well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Leadership Domain. Today, I, uh, I have a guest who still can't believe he took the time to do this, and I, I truly appreciate this. Uh, this will be a very quick and short introduction because most of you already know him. Uh, General Brown is the Chief of Staff of the Air Force and he's responsible for organizing, training, and equipping the 689,000 Guard, Reserve, Active Duty, and Civilian Force. A 1984 graduate of Texas Tech, and sir, you don't know this yet, but my 18-year-old just got accepted to Texas Tech, so we are practicing our guns up awesome. uh, all the time. And I, I truly appreciate the, the time, sir. And, you know, I, I mentioned your job, who you are, all the things we can get off the one-page bio on the Air Force webpage. Uh, but what's not in the bio that makes you the person, the leader, and the man you are? Um, there's probably several things. And it, it really, um, a very strong family. And uh, not just my immediate family, but I go back to my um, my parents and my grandparents. And, uh, you know, family of, of faith. And that's, that's something that, uh, you know, probably not in the bio. Um, I'm the son of an Army officer and um, the oldest of, uh, of three. Um, I think the other thing I would also highlight is, um, um, you know, very dynamic family, just in, we're all different between my wife and our two sons and, uh, you know, just watching them grow up and, and the fact that we are a, uh, exceptional family member program, you know, one of our sons is on the autism spectrum mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that's, uh, we're very proud of him, just like we're proud of our, our younger son, uh, totally different personalities. Right. Um, but it's it's that aspect of the the things that uh, we've all walked through, I, I think, and, and kind of tied to that is, uh, you know, folks may look at this as the fact that I sit here as a chief of staff of the Air Force is uh, that I'm a success. Uh, but I failed in several different uh, areas, um, you know, going back to my freshman year at Texas Tech when I got a, my first and only uh, final uh, grade as an F. And, uh, you know, you, then you start to you know, soul search a little bit, guys. Did I pick the right major? Uh, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, it's it's things like that. And I've actually I've had some of those failures throughout my career, and I, I live and learn off each one of those. And uh, I think that's for all of us. Really, it's how you bounce back from those, and that, that's kind of that's kind of me in a nutshell. Well, sir, I may have to pick your brain on uh, if my daughter decides that she gets an F her freshman year, uh, then I will uh, I'll figure out how you how you recovered from that one. You, you mentioned professional failures, like you said, people look at you sitting in that desk and that chair and say, there's a man who hasn't failed professionally. He did everything right his entire career. Do one of those leadership failures that you mentioned stand out that influenced you the most or impacted who you are and how you lead right now? 
Uh, there's two, and it really it lays in. Well, there's maybe three <laughs> in the first before you know before I even became a captain. So between second lieutenant, first lieutenant. Um, when I was in pod training, I had an emergency flying solo in a T-38. I didn't handle very well, and it probably dropped my stature in uh, pilot training because I wasn't a distinguished graduate. And I got told uh, I got my second choice of airplanes, um, and so that was the first one. And then when I got to uh, my F-16 uh, training, um, I was doing okay, um, but I felt like it when it was all said and done, I was probably at the bottom of my class. And there was a couple of things I was having trouble with night every feeling. And then uh, I was going to go to Kunsan and we had to actually get qualified in the uh, the 38, you know, before we carried the nine mil, we carried the 38, the six shooter. And, uh, you know, I, I was on my third try to get qualified in, before I could uh, go to Korea. And uh, I finally got called in by my ops officer and he asked, hey, you, like, you got any like personal problems, anything going on in your life? I go, well, no, I didn't really, I didn't grow up shooting guns. So that was one. And then I figured out later in my career um, that, uh, you know, I am right-handed, but I'm left eye dominant, which is why I was always missing the target, you know? And then finally, I, you know, thank God for YouTube. Uh, Cause that's how I figured out how to, how to fix that. And now my stress level is a lot less when I go uh, uh, qualify. And then the last one I would uh, offer is uh, when I got to Kunsan and did my uh, initial tactical check ride, I uh, I failed, and then uh, I got a recheck, and then the recheck I uh, got additional training. So it was a series of those events, and that was over the course of about a year um, of those kinds of things that kind of a uh, year and a half uh, really that, that really impacted me, and it really motivated me to actually push myself even harder, and. Uh, Again, it was really, you know, how one having a positive attitude after those and dusting yourself off again and figuring out how to get back up and, and, uh, and continue to push forward. And that motivated me, you know, well beyond to, you know, you know one to get the weapon school in some other locations and other jobs. But uh, that, those are probably the ones that were foundational for me, you know, where I fell pretty hard early. Uh, I would say, I wouldn't say I got it out of the way because there's probably a few more in there, but it was a way to actually help me shape you know, and motivate and drive myself uh, to make myself successful. So one of the, the challenges that I think that people have right now with respect to leadership is that we don't know how to allow people to fail or probably more accurately said is people don't feel like that they can fail because we're, we're fighting for stratifications. You're fighting for uh, getting promoted before your peers. As you've climbed the, the ladder and now sit atop of the ladder in, in, in the Air Force, how do you think we need to change the way that we uh, reward innovation and then failure or reward innovation and then you didn't make the mark this time, but we know you've developed uh, versus the you're the best and the number one instructor pilot. You're the number one security forces officer. Yeah, I think there's, there's two sides to this. You know, if you're the number one and best and you're not taking any risk, you're not moving it forward, not taking the initiative. Uh, I think we as leaders in those that have done this for a while can see right through that, you know, very risk averse, not doing anything and just trying to protect themselves uh, to ensure that they get that stratification or they get that next uh, key job and they're not willing to, to step out. I think the other is you, you want to look for folks who are actually willing to take the initiative and willing to fail, or at least really to push the envelope a little bit and challenge the status quo. Uh, you know, when I was a PACAF commander, a Pacific Air Forces uh, uh, commander, I developed a relationship with the Royal Australian Air Force uh, commander. We were talking one day and he said, when was the last time we gave out a medal for failure? And I go, well, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. 
And then how do you go find something that is successful within whatever organization you're, you're, you're privileged to lead and go back to whoever came up with the first idea that started this, not the person who actually got it over the goal line, but the person who had the initial idea and go back to them and go, hey, I wanna, I wanna give you a medal because, because of your idea and your, a little bit of your persistence and those that came in behind you, they were able to get this over the goal line. And, and, and with this though, we also gotta be willing to, um, what I would say, have some all shucks moments. And, and how and we, we as leaders, how we respond when someone fails. You know, do we rip them a new one or do we actually sit down and spend some time talking to them and go, okay, hey, that was a good, good try. Let me, let me see how we can help get this to be successful next time. And I think when the people you lead see you do that, they're more willing to kind of step out a little bit further because they know they're not going to get, you know, beat down because they, you know, fail. And then you want to, I always ask myself when something doesn't work out, what, what caused it was, you know, uh, my guidance was in, inaccurate. They didn't have the training or they didn't have the resources. So I'm always looking myself as a leader in the mirror first. And then if I, they had all that and they failed, then, you know, okay, maybe there's, we have another conversation, but how am I helping them uh, when they're failing forward? Not, not just failing and falling backwards, but failing forward to actually progress the, uh, what we're trying to do as, a, as an organization. Yes, sir. When you talk about failing forward and leaders recognizing when people are failing forward, you know, we can open the Air Force Times, the Military Times once a month and talk about or read about a leader who's been removed because they either weren't ready. Um, I know your views on, on toxicity um, and accountability, but do you think that because of the number of, of leaders that have been removed for, for reasons that are other than uh, they just didn't do a good job, so they're toxic leaders, they've broken rules they shouldn't have. Uh, do you think there's some change needed in how we select those leaders? Or is that just, that's what happens when you have a large organization, sometimes people are gonna fail. Well, there's, there's a bit of both, but I think the, uh, the, the latter is, um, I mean, the former is actually more, you know, how do we pick these leaders? And, and this is something I'm talking to the, the, uh, the staff here about is what, what things are we doing besides looking at a performance report that's written very, you know, it's, it's very glowing. It doesn't show any, any, any chinks in the armor, no failures, no, I mean, you, you got to figure out how to read the code to figure out if someone's not really as good as the piece of paper is. Right. And, and then, you know, with that is what, what kind of tools do we use? Um, and how do you figure out if, if an individual has actually done well in all their uh, positions of leadership, or do they have a history where they, they, they struggle a little bit? But then they get to the next one, and uh, you know you may not know as their supervisor, because everything you got was glowing. But how do you, how do you track that to understand? So you know part of that is how do we look at the various um, you know tools we use for those who have gone to various leadership schools and uh, some of the assessment tools that use that. But but also as we use our climate surveys to figure out okay hey, what was the climate in organization when when you were leading it, you know what was it uh, you know and was everybody were you very popular because you weren't doing anything, or were you um, unpopular because you were actually getting some things done and, and pushing some folks. And it's really how we, we collaborate with the, the teams we're privileged to lead to, to, to do this. And so our assessment, uh, we, we, I think we do need to work on our assessment um, in, in the Air Force. I've seen where the Army, you know, if you're tracking what the Army's doing, sure. they, they, they've got a, you know, I call it, it's like the NFL combine is the way I describe it. <laughs> right. Um, Psychological I, tests and everything, right? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I think there's some things that we can do to take a step a, a little bit further in, in that direction. So it's just not looking at performance reports. Um, it's a little deeper. And yeah, the last thing I'd say on that is, you know, we, as we 
grow up through uh, the Air Force and really any organization, there, there's probably these tools and I've taken a number of these assessment tools. Yeah, how do you pull this stuff together and not wait till right before selection for a leadership position? It's, it's a history of how you've done this throughout your career. And then part of that is now, how do we help you if you've got a blind spot? Um, or how do we coach you in, in an area that gets you, you know, make it more competitive. So it makes it even harder for me as a leader to pick out the, the cream of the crop. That, that should be our goal. Yes, sir, I also think there's some, there's something to be said for those you're looking at one uh, who developed a little bit later. So you have tried to lead, you didn't do too well, but the lessons that you learned because you didn't do well, maybe make it, may bring you up to speed or maybe uh, push you past somebody who hasn't gone through those struggles as, as they developed. Is there any thought to how you reward the, the late bloomers or how you you allow the late bloomers an opportunity because they've learned some lessons and had some reps and some sets that they didn't, maybe their peers who got it right all the time didn't have. Well, there's, there's a couple things to this. And I, I agree with you that uh, I felt like in some cases I was a late bloomer as well in, in certain areas, um, you know, based on our opening and the things I filled at. <laughs> so um, I do think, you know, one of the things in the United States Air Force we did is for, you know, those that are listening, we had a below the zone promotion. So you could actually accelerate your promotions. We're not doing that anymore. And uh, I think that it opens up the opportunities. So you don't feel like you're in a rush to get someplace and you only get one shot. And because of that, you can actually uh, spend more time working with, with uh, our officers and, and NCOs and develop them to be uh, stronger leaders as they go forward. And so, and we got to have a little more tolerance. And I think as leaders, when I say tolerance, it's the fact of how do we engage with the uh, those that uh, are supporters that are also leaders and how do we work with them? You know, we'll send you off the training and we say, okay, off you go. And uh, and then the next thing, if then you trip and then we're figuring out what we're gonna do with you versus, okay, how do we help you? And so it's a, it's a really bit of a, a different approach. I, I think the last thing I, I kind of share on this as well is we do have a little bit of a halo effect where what I mean by that is, you know, once you've been, you know, deemed worthy, you continue to, you know, and we don't want to upset that because it's going to upset somebody that was, you know, watching this individual that we got to get past that. And uh, in some cases, some of those that were worthy at one point are probably not worthy anymore based on, you know, they may be reading their own press clippings and then get to a point where they get a little overconfident. Uh, I think any leader needs to have a little bit of apprehension when they walk in every day. Uh, that keeps you honest. It keeps it builds your character. Um, and uh, you know, I always want to be just a little bit nervous about what I'm saying, what I'm doing. And that keeps me, uh, you know, keeps me on the straight and narrow. Keeps you on your toes. Yes, sir. One of the things that we struggle with, I believe, at least I struggled with, and as I get a chance to talk to other people when I travel, it seems people are still struggling with is developing leadership trust or trust in their leaders. You talked about some of the changes that you made. The cynic would say, thanks General Brown, got the changes, but are you really not doing below the zone or is it a wink wink? Uh, just a, an example. The question is, there's a lot of barriers to trust, it seems like with the senior leaders. Um, a lot of folks, hey, those older guys, they don't get it. And of course the senior leaders say, sometimes the younger guys just don't get it. From your perspective and the experiences you've had, uh, what's the biggest barrier to developing or getting over uh, that hurdle of trust? Open and transparent communication. Um, and it can't be, uh, you know, us sending out a, uh, an update in an Air Force instruction or a press release that says, here's what we're doing. Uh, what, what I've been sharing here recently, you know, having worked here in the Pentagon, this is my fourth time in the Pentagon. 
Um, there's a lot of good ideas that come out of the Pentagon, but once they get out to the uh, our bases, they're not such good ideas. Right. And uh, we can't be patting ourselves in the backpack up, up here to go, hey, this is a great idea. This they'll love this. What we got to do is get out and start talking to them, and understanding, you know, what we're trying to achieve, and not just table drop something to them. How do we work this together? You know, how do I actually go, hey, I've got an idea on how I'm going to do this. And let's, let's figure out how we engage with our airmen. And uh, my predecessor, General Golfing, uh, was doing a bit of that. Uh, that's something I've, I've always tried to do uh, a bit of is be able to, you know, I've got to make a decision, but it's helpful to actually have others in part of the decision making because they want to be heard. And, and the aspect of allowing our airmen to be, have some input in this actually means they have buy-in, you know, and, and you know, as I do a lot of study on leadership. And one of the things that uh, someone uh, came across once was, don't ask people for their opinion, ask for their advice. You ask for their advice and then you use some of their advice, they got skin in the game. And, and that's what I'm going to ask in our airmen. Give me some of your advice on how we approach this. You, you may not like, you know, don't, don't give me uh, just a problem. Give me a proposed solution because uh, I can fix it. But if you don't tell me what the solution is, you're going to go, I wish he hadn't done that. And so that's why, that's why I want some of that, that feedback. And that's how we're going to help, help uh, this build that trust that our airmen know they're being heard and they can actually see the fruits of their, you know, them speaking up by something that we change or approach. Um, they can go, you know, I actually had a chance to talk to General Brown about that. And I, now I got to see that it happened. And those are the kinds of things, and not just me, but any one of our senior leaders, uh, both officer and enlisted. The study on racial disparity, it's out there. Uh, people have seen it. You talked about getting advice from airmen. Have you had a chance to get advice from airmen on the next step? And, and if so, what do you think that next step is to, to resolving or getting over that hump? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you that the advice we got was loud and clear in the, uh, the actual uh, review itself. And when you think about the uh, 123,000 airmen that responded to the survey, I think that is probably the, in the 35, almost 36 years I've been doing this, I don't think we've ever had a survey we had that many people respond when the Air Force sent something out. And 27,000 pages of single space that Airmen wrote in free text. Okay, so um, I got a chance, we got a chance to hear. The other was also the engagements we had at the, um, about, about close to 140 kind of small group sessions that uh, the uh, Inspector General did to gain information and how all that came, came together. And then for my own personal travels, when I go out and uh, I try to always have a, uh, a lunch or a breakfast with airmen, and this is one of the topics. And I talk about some of the things we're, we're looking uh, to do and we're already in process of doing, but also to get their feedback. Because what I've said, I wanna make sure anything we're doing is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be meaningful, sustainable and enduring. Meaningful that our airmen look at it and go, okay, that actually, you know, that, that's about what I'm talking about as far as we were hoping you were gonna do something like this. It's gotta be sustainable. You know, we gotta be able to put the money behind it and we can't go, you know, uh, for example, uh, we're doing scholarships at uh, HBCUs, historically botched college and universities. We can't do hundred next this year and drop down to 75 next year. If we do hundred, we gotta stay at hundred and even go higher. It's those kinds of things. And then it's gotta be enduring. And what I mean by that, it's gonna be something well beyond me, you know, that is anchored into what we do day in and day out as part of our United States Air Force. Now. The challenge there is some of that, some of those take time because one, it's a cultural shift, um, but it's also, um, you know, just a process that we do no harm because we don't want to do is actually, you know, do a pendulum effect, change something, and have to change it back, and we start losing credibility. 
And, and so we, we got to continue to talk with Ehrman. I just got the 60 day, uh, you know, root cause analysis and have gone through that. And it showed that, you know, there's some things we, we got some work to do. And uh, I think we've, we have known this for a while. Uh, and the best way is to solve a problem is to admit you have a problem. And we have a bit of a problem. And uh, I, I think it's good that we were actually uh, taking some steps to uh, get there. And um, I may be a little biased as an Air Force officer, but we, and we, we probably stepped out on this one a bit further and uh, challenge ourselves. And then on top of that, we, we're doing a kind of the 2.0 to this to look at gender and other uh, uh, other um, diverse groups within our Air Force. Um, so I have at least a baseline to know who, I can't know if I'm improving if I don't know where I am. And, and that's part of what we're doing as well. So, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of work to be done and uh, there's some positive things being done in, in some of the changes of our AFIs and approaches to, to open up uh, more opportunity for career development and promotion for airmen of all backgrounds. Sort of follow on to that and probably more of a personal question. Uh, apologize for that up front. You have your video out there that everybody has seen what I'm thinking about, it, which was very candid, uh, very emotional, very vulnerable. Do you feel that being a black man in the seat that you're in right now with this study puts more pressure on you to try to resolve this and move this forward? Or do you think it's a little easier for you because of your background and your experiences? That is a good question. Um, a little bit of both. Um, I, I think uh, the video, the study open up and the events over the course of summer, open up the conversation, a conversation that, that across the Air Force and across the nation, I don't think we would have gotten to without some of the events that occurred. It was probably, and you look at it, it was probably born in the background uh, until the 25th of May. Um, so it's probably easier for me to say some things about what we wanna be able to do um, you know, post 25 May than prior to 25 May, where you would have got maybe a little more uh, pushback. But it also includes an extra pressure because what happens then is they expect that because I'm sitting here that I'm gonna be able to, with a stroke of a pen, make all this stuff change. With a stroke of a pen, I can actually lay some things out that I want to change, but I cannot change this by myself, okay? I can I can put out a policy guidance or whatever, but the policy is only as good as the leadership that's actually enacting it at all levels. And so this is where I need support of our airmen and our leadership team across the Air Force of, you know, how do we do this together? And I, I know there's going to be some pockets of resistance that uh, don't necessarily agree. Um, but, you know, going back to the first part, it is easier because now I can actually say something and hold ourselves more accountable. And I think we will hold ourselves more accountable as an Air Force and as a nation because of the events that have occurred. Uh, what I don't want to do is have this momentum fade away because we have a window um, where we got to continue to, to work through this. So there's combined uh, some, some parts easier, but there also there'll be some pressure to deliver. Do you think that when the study comes back on the other diverse groups and women that you will find just as much of a problem, um, less of a problem, similar? I, I think it'll be similar. And the reason why I say that, and you think if you read the first part of the report, it's, it's all data. And you can pick out, although the, there's data and charts, um, and the, uh, the narrative actually focuses on African-American, you can look at the charts and kind of see some of the same trend lines. And, uh, and, and so from, from that, that'll be helpful. What'll be really interesting is the fact we're gonna go back and do the survey again. 
or surveys like this to the other diverse groups. And they're all gonna have different perspectives on things that they've seen um, that they'll highlight. You know, matter of fact, yesterday for International Women's Day, um, the Air Force uh, with the Space Force, we had the Department of Air Force's first women's air and space power symposium. I spoke of that and there's probably, I don't know, I think it was well over a thousand that were tuned into this on Facebook Live. And uh, they highlighted some things, you know, okay, there's some things that, you know, I didn't know. And that's the part of doing these, these surveys is because each one of us has a blind spot, whether we're from a diverse background or not, particularly if you're not from that background, you, you, they're going to see it differently than you. And that's the value of these is you, you're going to figure out. Now, you may have some, some commonality, uh, but there's probably some other things that are not common that, you know, these kind of surveys and uh, reviews actually kind of highlight to us to open up the afternoon and have the conversation. Because in some cases, I think for these verse groups, we they've all been saying it for a while. Just no one was, I wouldn't say no one was listening. We just, you know, they heard it, but then didn't think it was important enough to to, uh, to address. And I think we're in a much different environment now where there's the expectation to address this. And you look at the, the nation, and you look at the new administration just came in and they're focused on uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, we're, we're all gonna be held to account. And I think uh, it's probably the right you know, right environment to, to do some of the things you want to be able to do because you got, you know, from the from the president on down, you really have opportunities where we're, we're all looking at this and, and how we uh, how we make it better for our nation and, and you know, for me personally, as for our Air Force. One of the things that you can look at in, in the numbers, and I, I won't even try to get them 100% corrected, but is the accessions for minorities, it doesn't matter what color of skin, to include females, is at one point but the, it drops off. So the retention is, is a challenge. Is that something that, that you were looking at? And if so, specifically for, since the study's out and racial disparity, um, what are the, what attempts do you think you can make or you expect your leaders to make to help with the retention of minorities? And then maybe that's exportable to the next study as well. Well, I think, you know, as, as we look at this and, and this is something I'm curious about um, on certain areas for certain demographic groups, uh, why at more senior level they're, you know, the numbers get so much smaller and, and they kind of tell off. And some of, you know, almost want to be able to do an exit survey, but I want to even start before that. And, and as you talk to your airmen that are, you know, not even close to where they can actually separate from the Air Forces, you know, what are you thinking about and why would you consider separating? Why would you stay? And that, that would be instructive to us to be able to understand um, when someone before they get on because once i think they get an individual gets close to say they, they're going to separate from the air force you're not i mean you can go back and try to convince them but it's probably too late if you talk to them early in the process to go you know what what do you like about the air force what, what frustrates you um why would you stay why would you leave and use that information to determine you know how best to retain that talent particularly the diverse talent and i think the, the one thing that uh you know for every any 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 background, whether it's your diversity based on, uh, you know, race, gender, ethnic background, or Air Force specialty, you want to look up and see that there's somebody who has the same background you have that's in a position of leadership. If you don't see that, you go, there's probably not a good shot for me here. And then, you know, you're more inclined to go move on and go do something else. And so that, that to me is, you know, we've got to manage our diverse talent uh, much better in order that you have those at the younger uh, levels can actually look up and see, hey, there's somebody that looks like me. So I, you know, I have a shot and, uh, you know, ideally, you know, me sitting where I am today shows that, you know, folks from a diverse background have a shot and, and that's all they want. They want an opportunity. I'm not looking for my advice here, 
uh, one of the things that I get an opportunity to do that I, I, I felt led to do is I'm not an HBCU grad, obviously, uh, an academy grad, but I'm going to work on talking with some HBCUs to their cadets. And one of the problems I think is even though we have a diverse and an inclusive Air Force at some point is that those diverse groups don't necessarily feel like they belong. So we're lacking that belonging piece. And some of that is, I believe, the, their expectations aren't necessarily managed. So one of the things that, that I'm trying to do with a few of them is just talk. Say, as a minority walking into the Air Force, here are some expectations. If those are managed initially, then maybe it's not such a, a culture shock or a shock um, when you get three, four, five, or six years in, when you have the ability to make that decision on, on whether you want to go or not. So um, there you go, sir. For, for, for whatever that's no worth. Problem. Or is uh, it advice? Yeah, sir, there's the advice. Um, another challenge that is that is not a surprise is commanders and their ability authorities on dealing with sexual assault. Congress has been talking about this for a while. There are people who are very vocal about this. Do you think that that your commanders are getting better at handling that? And probably more important, do you think that they're doing it well enough to where a Congress is able to say, yes, we now trust you to handle this challenge? Well, I don't know that we're going to be able to, you know, in a short period of time to be able to convince Congress uh, one way or another, because there, there, there is a perception. Um, I, I do believe that, um, you know, just the results of these open conversations about, uh, about race, about extremism, open up the conversation on sexual assault a bit more than, than it has in, in the past. Um, I do believe that uh, as we look to the future, whatever we decide to do, we got to make it better. And so you, there's got to be a little bit of an analysis because you can change, but if you're not changing for the better, then uh, it kind of begs the question, why would you change? And, uh, you know, one area that we're focused on is, is, is you know, the conversation with Congress a bit is more on on the uh, accountability after the fact, we really got to work on is the prevention so it doesn't occur. And if you can get to that part, then you have to work, you know, you, I'm not saying you don't have to worry about the other part, but it's, it's less of a thing that you have to be concerned with. And this is where I really look at and how we develop our leaders that they are focused on creating the environment where all our airmen and families can reach their full potential. What's right about the United States Air Force, the oath we took, our core values, and then you have those that don't get it. And those who don't get it, we don't need. And, uh, and, and how do we how do we handle uh, those? And actually look at you know, some of the programs we do have, uh, I, I think are pretty good. Um, but the key part of this is good order and discipline and who has the accountability for good order and discipline. That's typically the commander or the leader of that particular unit. And so it does create a few challenges if you start to separate some of those things out. Not to say you can't do it, but it, it creates, uh, you know, uh, it creates some challenges and we have to figure out how best to do that if, if things change in, in the way some propose, or if we keep it the same way, we've got to look at how we change to build that trust and confidence like you described um, to, to maintain it to, to, in the status quo of, of where we are today. I'm gonna take you back to, uh, I can't remember, it's probably it's between 2004 and 2007. Colonel Brown had Captain Roan in his office and we were talking about a specific leadership challenge that we were having in the, in the barnyard. Uh, and you looked at me and you said, well, what do you think? We talked about it. You said, well, go fix it. So the question is, 
how do you develop what caused you or what influenced you to influenced you to develop your leadership values and purpose and to tell this little punk arrogant captain to just go fix it with all the support um, of the colonel behind him um you know I, I think it's you know just based on i grew up in uh you know my my father being an army officer and you know some of the things that my my, my mom the things that they instilled in me um i think it ties back to my my leadership tenets that I could trace back to a radio interview I did when I was a senior in high school. You know, execute a high standard, be disciplined in execution, pay attention to detail, and have fun. And uh, I've always felt like I could take very complex issues and then be able to simplify them and, and figure out how best to approach things. And it's partly, you know, maybe it's partly because of my personality. I'm an introvert, so I, I tend to listen more than I talk. And uh, I mean, I'm just soaking information in. And I'm always milling over my mind. Okay, how, how would I do this? So I'm, you know, I wouldn't call myself a supercomputer, but it's one of those, I'm always got things running racing in my mind about how do I make myself better? How do I make the organization I have a chance to lead better? How do I make and help those that work with me to make them better? And that's why these conversations and the conversation, you know, I don't, I don't remember the, the conversation itself, but uh, I've had a number of those with others. They just, they come in and, and, and working through an issue. And, you know, I think it frustrates my wife because I'm, I'm a problem solver, <laughs> you know, I just wanted you to listen. I didn't need you to do anything. Um, but I think if some of us have that characteristic. Um, but it, it's it's being able to sit down and just talk talk it through. And and to me, that's probably the most important thing you can do. And and sometimes when when someone comes with a problem, they need somebody to listen. And that's probably why I told you you, you told me what you thought. And I said a few things. I said go go out and fix it. You were just looking for some validation, maybe, because you you already probably had a good idea what you're going to do anyway. And, and you just wanted to bounce it off and, and see if you know. I was going to give you the top cover. And, and typically, I, I trust the people that, I mean, trust the people that work for me. They're put in that position because of who they are. And uh, I want to make sure I'm able to trust them. And and sometimes we, we got to talk in a little, a little bit of a, you know, correction left or right. But by and large, they're typically on the right track. We talked about blind spots with respect to the surveys or just leadership in general. What? Do you recognize any of your blind spots? And if so, how do you hold yourself accountable or who do you turn to to keep you accountable to make sure that somebody sheds some light on those? Uh, well, there's, there's a few, there's, there's some things I know I do, um, you know, partly because I'm an introvert, I don't say much. And I know it's gonna be intimidating sometimes if I just walk into a room and don't say anything. So I've, I've got to purposely, you know, put on a, you know, put on a happy face and, you know, talk and joke, um, even when I'm not in the mood. Um, and that's the thing, you know, in my office, it's like I will maybe get a little animated when the doors close. But when I come out of the office and walk down, it's showtime. And so folks are watching. And maybe the only time that I walk past somebody, if I don't say hello or say hi, you know, they'll say the cheap of staff just walk past. You didn't even bother to say hi. OK, so it's one of those things you get really got to pay attention to. Um, you know, the, I, I get it from my wife, you know, uh, particularly when I do a speaking engagement because she, she'll give me the honest feedback, you know, uh, you know, how engaging the speech was, or what she thought about it. Um, but it's also with the staff. And so I built, you know, you build a rapport with the staff where you can sit and sit down and talk and, and joke where they feel comfortable enough that they can come talk to you. They don't feel like you're going to, you know, rip their head off if they come in and say, you know, hey, boss, uh, did you ever think about? Or, um, and, and I try to keep it light, which goes to my last of my leadership tenets is to have fun and, and really to build a rapport with the folks that are really working closely with me. So they feel comfortable enough that they can come in and, and, and make a comment um, or point out something to me that I was that I either missed or someone sat there and told because it 
that's the other part. A lot of folks will approach members of the staff and tell them they won't come to me. And so they're trusting them to come to me to tell me. And if I don't build that, uh, that uh, where they feel comfortable enough, then uh, they won't come talk to me. It reminds me of our time at the weapons school. Humble, approachable, incredible. Okay. You got to be humble and approachable. Based on the position I'm in, I'm probably credible. But if I'm not humble or approachable, no one's going to come talk to me. And uh, I've got to be humble and approachable as I, as I do that. If I have the count right, Chief, um, about eight, nine, between seven and nine, maybe different commands that you've held in your in your career. You're pretty experienced commander, obviously a very experienced airman. What what worries you or scares you about command right now, if anything? Um, that, I, that I would fail my airman at, at any level. Because it not only impacts them, but it'll probably, you know, in some cases, impacts, you know, impacts their family, impacts their future. Um, and so, if I let them down, I let myself down, and uh, that's the thing I, I, uh, I, I worry about. And so, I want to, you know, at least be seen that whatever I'm doing, I'm trying to make a difference for for, for them. And uh, you know, many times when I do all calls and, and talk to your men, is I, I tell them, you know, they don't work for me, I work for them. My job is to make their job easier. And the harder I've gone, I've had more, you know, throw weight to make that happen. Um, realizing I can't, like I said, I can't do it all by myself, but I actually have more impact at each one of these levels. And, uh, you know, I'm hopefully speaking for the, the little guy or little gal in, in, in some of these meetings to ask some of the hard questions of our staff and, uh, and to challenge ourselves. And uh, I, I think by doing that, it, it ends up with a better, uh, a better result for Airmen and, uh, I just want them to know I'm, I'm trying to, I'm doing the best I can to, to help them. And I don't want, I want them to be successful and have the same opportunities I've had, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, in the same career field, whatever, but just to, to, I don't want, I don't want to let them down. When you have a chance to engage with the airman, I know you and, and chief Bass have been on the road a lot since you, you got in the seat. It's not lost on you that the airmen that you're talking to who are front and center are the superstars. They're the best that the wing or group or the NAF or the MATCHCOM have to offer. How do you get the true story? How do you get the, all right, I, I appreciate your superstars. It's awesome to shake hands for the chief of staff, but how do you get the true story from the rest of the airmen or the rest of the culture in the base? Well, one, one of the approaches I try to take is um, when I travel, uh, I hate going into conference rooms and looking at PowerPoint slides. Uh, what I'd rather do is actually do, you know, out and about and, you know, they'll have an airman who's going to brief, but usually there's a few other airmen standing around. So I can ask questions and uh, you can always, you know, be in a form and you can tell someone's, you know, they're, they're itching or they're, you know, moving back and forth and you go, they, they probably got a, uh, a question or a comment. And, uh, and then I challenge them. I go, Hey, you know, you probably, you know, walked around at some point and go, if I ever see the chief of staff there for us, I was going to tell them. Okay. And I go, well, here I am. Right. Fair game. And uh, I tell them, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking names, I'm, but I am taking notes. I'm trying to make it better for you and everybody else is impacted by the same uh, same situation or same problem. Because invariably, if you're having that problem, there's probably another airman having the same problem. It's just I have not crossed paths with them. Or when they did cross paths with them, they were too afraid to tell me. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for taskers uh, and, uh, and how we make things better. And I can't fix it if I don't know about it. 
if I can bring it back to the, the leadership connection that you were talking about and, and how you have to focus on, on game time to, to take your introvert tendencies and, and put them on, on the back burner for just a little while. As an introvert myself uh, who loves people, which I know that's, that's irony a little bit, uh, but to me, I find it just draining. So how do you recharge after spending time on the road as an introvert and talking to hundreds, if not thousands of airmen, how do you recharge and get ready to go back and do it all again and solve problems for 689,000 people? Well, I, you know, I have my own personal routine and, and, you know, part of that starts, uh, you know, I'm usually up each morning by shortly after five. Um, I, I get to, uh, I go work out each morning, just about every morning. And it gives me time to um, really be my, by myself. I'm usually listening to a, a podcast uh, on leadership and listening to a book. You know, I quit listening to music years ago. Um, and so I'm really listening to stuff to uh, strengthen myself, but it gives me time to just to think. Uh, I read a devotional every day. Uh, after I get dressed, before I walk the door, it's one of the last things I do before I hit the, you know, hit the door, before I kiss Shireen and, and, and head off to work. Um, but it's also having just some downtime. And uh, usually in the evenings, you know, it's time Shireen and I have together where we can just sit there and talk. Or I just, even when she wants to come talk, there's times I go, I just need a, she goes, well, you must've used all your words today. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> and, and so part of that is just be, be having some downtime to recharge and be by your, you know, a little bit of time by yourself just to be alone with your thoughts. And, uh, you know, I, I usually get about five, six hours of sleep each night and probably one night a week I, I end up in the recliner, you know, then I wake up and wake up so I can go to bed uh, just to get caught back up on, on some sleep. But it's really, um, blocking out time for me. And then I've got to do that periodically because there's always something I could be doing related to my job, but, uh, I got to be a little, I think we all got to be a little selfish, you know, and how you take care of yourself. And, you know, I'm eating better. I work out, um, those kinds of things that help me keep the pace that I do. Uh, cause I like the pace, but you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm, uh, around well after, you know, I'm done doing this, uh, to be sick, sitting in a rocking chair someplace and, and then join a, a cocktail or or, uh, or something. I still remember I was in Vegas and you were out there. I can't remember, maybe a WebTAC or something along those lines. And we just had a discussion on fitness um, when I was sitting in the group command seat and how challenging it is. And uh, and so I used your example. You probably didn't know this, but you're doing burpees in the gym. So I took a quick photo and watched you doing burpees <laughs> and sent that, to, sent that to the airman that was having some challenges and said, well, hey, if the, if the PACAF commander can do burpees at, at 530 in the morning, then I think you're going to be okay. You, you mentioned some, you know, when when you're finished with this, and you want to make sure that you 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 keep everything on um, on the up and up. You take care of yourself. You have some life and energy left after it. So, what does the chief of staff of the Air Force do when he retires? What does he want to do? What do you, what do you think about? It? Maybe it's too early, but when you're when you go to sleep and lay on the couch, like when I'm done with this, this is what's next. I want to be like you. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I, I want no. I want to. I want to continue talking about leadership. Uh, I want to help others be better leaders. And if I have an opportunity to do something uh, in, in that form, um, that's what I, it's, it's a way for me to give back. And because uh, I'll be, I do. I spend a lot of time thinking about leadership, um, just in general, but also for me personally. And uh, and so being able to do things about leadership. I've got a lot of leadership thoughts. Unfortunately, I don't write most of them down. And uh, it's in forms like this where people ask me questions and uh, some of these nuggets come out. Because I, th I think about it so often. And, and so it's, it's to be able to do uh, that type of work uh, with young people uh, to, to make them better leaders 
uh, and so they can contribute to whatever whatever they decide to do um, in their life, um, they'll be successful. And, and so that's that that's probably one of the key things I want to be able to do. As you sit there now, said you said almost thirty eight years, uh, you, you've gotten about as high as high as you can get. Um, as a leader, do you? Is there a specific skill set that you know that you have to continue to work on or that you're trying to improve, uh, even as a chief of staff of the Air Force? Um, yeah, I think one of the areas that for me, and this really goes back to being an introvert, is the um, still, I mean, I enjoy engaging with people, uh, but sometimes it's, it's a bit challenging if it's, you know, we don't know each other already, you know, and, and how do I, you know, one, how do I start a conversation, keep a conversation going? See, one of the most challenging things I, I've had to do as a leader is particularly, you know, most of my time as a general officer has been overseas. And so now I go to these meetings with uh, um, foreign dignitaries from other services and maybe through a translator and the, and the conversation starts to fade. I mean, you, you got now you got to start digging. And that, that to me is something I, I got to work on. It's, it's easier for some extroverts because they've got they got so much energy. They'll, they'll, they'll keep talking. You know, for me, that, that has been a. That's an area I got to continue to work on and, and really think about it, particularly if I'm going to a situation where I know um, we get, you know, I'll look at a, my calendar and go, we got a lot of time in this thing. I'm not sure I can carry that conversation that long because I've been in that situation, you know, trying to make up stuff to talk about. Um, so, so that's where I work on of, of how I can better engage in situations where the individual I'm engaging with, I'm not familiar with, or we may have a common, um, a common bond or topic, you know, whether it's, you know, I like NFL football, talking about NFL football or, or talking about what I do on my day-to-day -day job. If you're out, if it's off of that, sometimes it, it, I've got to struggle a little bit to, to engage. I've been talking about NFL football for a long time, specifically how the Cowboys are one, just one year away from going back to the Super Bowl. I've been talking about that. For they, they just signed Dak again, so. I did. We, we, may, we may be there. Yes, sir. I, I had a hard time feeling bad that his 26 million wasn't quite enough per year. So. <laughs> yeah. He had his kids to feed, I guess. Um, all right, so you mentioned uh, books. What's the one you're reading now, or what's one that you recommend every leader read? Um, the one I've read most, I've read several here recently, but the one I read most recently that was I thought was most uh, impactful that really resonated with me was uh, No Rules Rules, The Reinvention of Netflix. And it talks about how Netflix operates. And one of the areas that they talk about is um, they call it FNR, freedom and responsibility. You have freedom to make all the decisions you want, but you're responsible for the decision you make. And, and so they really don't tie the hands of their, their leadership teams to make decisions on what shows to pursue, what contracts to sign. It's just you're responsible. The other uh, thing that came out of that book was uh, the two types of leadership they talk about. You can do leadership by control or leadership by context. I'm a fan of leadership by context. Leadership by control is you're, you're, you're kind of micromanaging. Leadership by context is you give broad intent and then you allow the those you're privileged to lead to have the FNR, the freedom and responsibility to go do what they need to go do. And, uh, you know, I, I just finished reading that book here just a couple of months ago, um, but that was one that really, really stood out to me. And then the other one I can actually throw your direction is uh, uh, Lincoln on Leadership by Donald T. Phillips. That is probably my most favorite book of leadership books um, I've read. I picked that up when I was a captain. Um, I'm still a fan of it. Uh, it really talks about Lincoln. And you know, one thing that resonates out of that book for me is, you know, Lincoln would write very hot letters to his commanders in the field 
during the Civil War, but he never sent them. He just keep them in his coat pocket, and uh, was just very, you know, very uh, calm about how he approached things. Uh, I think the same thing about how I try to approach problems. You know, and I, you know, matter of fact, when we were at the uh, there at LUD together, and we get these emails from uh, Central Command, and I start crafting a hot response. I go, they're not even up yet. So I just I just back away from the computer, give myself a few hours, and then craft an email that's actually going to make the point without uh, you know, creating a firestorm. And I think I learned that from you know that book Lincoln on Leadership. Well, sir, uh, one, it's not lost on me that I, I get forty-five to sixty minutes of an audience uh, with the chief of staff of the Air Force. So I, I appreciate it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I worked with Colonel Brown, worked with, worked with Lieutenant General Brown, and the impact that you've had on me. Uh, as, as a person and as a professional, I, I truly appreciate and appreciate the time uh, and the access. Two things I always say that, that, I take, that I took from you is one, proceed until apprehended. And number two, give it to the lowest, down to, get it down to the lowest competent level as soon as possible. And uh, those are, are things that um, I continue to try to live by with my personal life as well with, with children. So thank you very much for your time, sir. I will turn the last, uh, last couple uh, minutes and words over to you. And thanks for your leadership truly appreciate it. Well, thanks, big dog. And um, it's uh, it's really it is a honor and privilege to lead and be uh, really just to have this opportunity, um, whether it's sitting down talking to you about leadership or the fact that I get a chance to, to lead. I, you know, I tell folks that it, I still, you know, although I've been doing this about seven months now, I still pinch myself every once in a while when I hear my name and chief of staff of the Air Force in the same sense, because I never aspired to be here. Um, I just kept, uh, you know, working hard and um, I've had opportunities to, to uh, progress in different leadership positions. And, uh, you know, I think I've been really blessed. That I have a God-given talent to, to be in position like this and lead. And I, you know, I get stressed a little bit, but by and large, um, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the pressure. I, I feel like uh, I want, you know, two minute drill. I want the ball in my hands uh, and, and be able to make things happen. So it's just, it's just a real privilege to do this and uh, to have an impact and to make a difference. And that's, that's to me is probably the most important thing I can do is make a difference. Um, and uh, that's my intent in, in every, every job I've ever been in. And uh, again, uh, thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with you today.